Hi guys, and welcome back to season two of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. Guys, I'm super pumped to bring you an all-star lineup this season, and we're going to kick things off in this episode with Dr. Rob Orr. Rob Orr joined the Australian Army in 1989 as an infantry soldier before transferring to the Australian Defence Force's physical training instructor stream, where he served for 10 years. In this time period, Rob designed, developed, instructed, and audited physical training programs and physical education and rehabilitation courses for the military personnel and fellow PTIs from both Australian and foreign defence forces. Rob subsequently transferred to the physiotherapy stream, where his role included the clinical rehabilitation of defence members and project management of physical conditioning optimization reviews. Serving as the Human Performance Officer for Special Operations before joining the team at Bond University in 2012, Rob continues to serve in the Army Reserve as a Human Performance Officer and as a Sessional Lecturer and Consultant. Rob is the Director of Bond University's Tactical Research Unit, a unit with international collaborations designed to provide research, consultancy, education services to tactical professions around the globe. Generally focused on the tactical population, Rob is actively involved in research with Australian and foreign defence forces, an extensive list of law enforcement departments, both international and national, as well as firefighters and first responders. As well as his applied and research background, Dr. Orr served on the organizing committee for the 4th and 5th International Congress on Soldiers' Physical Performance and on the scientific committees. Dr. Orr is also chair of the organizing committee for the 4th Physical Employment Standards Conference to be held in 2022 at Bond University, Australia. With over 150 peer-reviewed publications, 30 technical reports and 200 conference presentations, Rob has presented his work both nationally and internationally and has been invited to present at several keynote presentations at internationally renowned research facilities and congresses. It's no surprise that he's won awards for research outcomes, publications, and teaching. Rob recently won the Bond University's prestigious Vice-Chancellor's Award for Research Excellence in 2020. In this episode, Rob talks about what the demands of load carriage are, the impact of load carriage on tactical personnel from an injury and performance standpoint, where he sees the research going next with regards to load carriage, and World Physiotherapy Congress the common faults people commit when training for load carriage performance, his recommendations for appropriate training around load carriage, and some of the other research projects he and his team at the Tactical Research Unit are undertaking. Good morning, Rob, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. Hey, mate. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. You're someone I've wanted to chat to for a very long time, so I'm very glad to finally get on here, mate. Um, obviously, you're currently at Bond at the Tactical Research Unit doing some great, great things there. For anyone who hasn't come across you and your work and like your backstory as well, can you just tell us a little bit about where your career started out and how you got to where you're at now? Okay. Um, so I was actually a high school dropout. I dropped out of high school uh, year 11 in Australia and I went straight into the army. Um, there was nothing that I really wanted to do and I thought, well, I'll give the army a crack. So I joined the Australian army as a full-time soldier and I qualified as an infantry soldier. So, you know, I was, I was having fun serving as an infantry soldier, enjoying life. And um, remember that every time, you know, we'd go in the morning to do physical training, there'd be this guy in red shorts and a, you know, sprayed on singlet, uh, yelling and barking orders and, and making us work. And I thought, you know what, I want that job. So I did our combat fitness leader course, uh, and then I was selected to go onto our physical training instructors course. So I qualified as an Australian Army physical training instructor. And I did that for several years. Uh, and whilst I was in, in that position, um, I got approached to look at, uh, you know, this translation from performance and foundation and how they interdigitate. So when soldiers get injured, how do you get them back to full performance? And it's normally this transition from initial care 
uh, into that performance that they kept getting rebroken. So Army said, look, how about we, we fund you to go do um, a master's of physiotherapy? So I then qualified as a physiotherapist uh, and I then started working as a clinical physiotherapist in uniform. And after several years of that, uh, they, they said, look, so now that you've got a bit of a clinical experience, um, we want you to start working as a human performance officer, specifically work on that translation from initial injury through to optimal performance at the other end. And uh, I ended up doing that across several units, uh, finished off at the uh, Special Operations Command, uh, helping with some human performance aspects in that space. And I finished my PhD and then ended up going to Bond University. I uh, got poached by Bond and I came over here. And I was working here for several years with one of my longtime mentors, Dr. Rod Pope. And we thought, you know, even though we're doing a lot of research in this tactical space, how about we make it something more formal? So we set up the tactical research unit in 2015 and it's grown from strength to strength. A fantastic bunch of international collaborators and personnel that we actually work with serving across all three tactical fields from the military, law enforcement to fire and rescue. Uh, and this year in 2020, we actually uh, were upgraded, so to speak, to a faculty research center. So we're now actually a, uh, a recognized faculty research center here at Bond University. Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds like a great career path through there as well. Obviously, again, put forward by the, the Army to make that move and do your master's in physiotherapy. Was that something you'd always had in the back of your mind, you know, while you were doing the PTI stuff? You're like, oh, I'd actually like to delve into this a little bit more. Or was it just something you're like, oh, wow, it's a great opportunity? Uh, so that's a great question. It was actually a, a bit of a combination of both because whilst I was, I was actually a physical training instructor, I used to, uh, I was also the rehab physical training instructor. Yeah. So when I was at the Royal Military College, for example, I was in charge of the rehabilitation and working with the physiotherapist. So I'd go to all the allied health uh, meetings for injured personnel. Uh, and I look, I love their knowledge there and the way they looked at things, which was different to ours. Um, and I thought, you know, th there's some good stuff that I can learn here and that can make me a better PTI. Uh, and then that opportunity arose and I jumped at it uh, with both hands. Mm -hmm. And then obviously after doing your, your master's, I, I first came across your work. So I stumbled across your, your PhD online as well. So how did that transition into that and why, why do you decide to pursue the PhD? Oh, that's a nice question. Um, believe it or not, <laughs> when I dropped out of high school in year 11, my principal at the time, when, he's, you know, when I told him, look, I'm dropping out and I'm joining the army, he said, look, unless you finish year 12, you'll never make anything of yourself. So I thought, you know what? The highest academic qualification you can get is a PhD. I'm going to get one. And having served as an infantry soldier, um, having... You know, being a physical training instructor, training people to carry load, having been a physiotherapist, fixing people who we've broken carrying load, and then having been a human performance officer looking at how to optimize load carriage, I had this real fascination of it. And I came across Dr. Cho, uh, Dr. Joe Knappick's paper mm -hmm. uh, on load carriage, and that was in 2004, and that was a seminal bit of work. And I actually started to understand there's actually a, a science behind this. And um, I said, well, you know what, let's, let's just investigate this further. Nice, nice, nice. So obviously, you know, load carriage within military populations, especially like it, you can't avoid it because obviously you've got to carry your kit and you've got to get it from A to B. You know, there's no other options around it and stuff like that. So what, what's, the, what's the, the, the backstory, the full history of load carriage? You know, how far back can we track it through history? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's an interesting question simply because that was one of the things that almost literally, you know, 
broke my brain mentally because I thought, you know, I'm going to do load courage. And I've seen it from so many different angles that most people haven't. Yeah. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to be the one that fixes this. And then the first thing I started doing with my PhD was doing a, a historical review. Yeah. What do we know about the history of load courage? And that's when I went back to like 800 BC and the Assyrian spearmen who'd been experimenting with shield weights to decrease their shield weights so they could optimize their combat effectiveness. And then you go into, you know, 100 BC where you've got Gaius Marius, who ch who's, a, who's a Roman senator who changes the way that uh, Roman legionnaires move load. So they said, you know what, it's costing us too much money to have all these mules carry all your kit. Mm -hmm. So you know what, you can carry your kit. So there's a politician, you know, 100 BC affecting load carriage in the, in the military to save money. Uh -huh. And when you actually go back through this history, we've been trying to do this for 3000 years. And I'm sitting there going, <laughs> and I expect to fix this. You know, people have been working on this for 3000 years and we still haven't got it right. And uh, that was a really interesting moment. And what you tend to find is there's this, this almost like a wave-like pattern where when conflicts start, um, you know, personnel and soldiers in particular are carrying exponentially heavy loads. And then as they start to get into the theater for a longer period of time, the loads start to diminish as they start to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, as soon as the next conflict starts, all the loads go up again. And, you know, weapons have changed from shields and spears to, you know, the forms of lethality we've got today that were unimaginable, you know, new types of smart rifles, etc. Um, our, our alliances, you know, of who we allied with have changed. Mm -hmm. The countries and the theaters that we work in change constantly. But the one thing that hasn't really changed is load. And if anything, it's getting worse, not better. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, Kit has tried to change to be, you know, as high tech and upgraded by trying to minimize weight, but still keeping, you know, that performance aspect to it. But it's still got that heavy load aspect to it going through. So what, what's like, how has that, uh, that graph of that increase in load gone from, you know, the Syrian spearmen to where we're at now? Like, how much has that increased over time, over those 3,000 years? Sure. So basically, we've looked at an, an average load of about 20, uh, 20 to 25 kilograms, progressing up now to 45 kilograms as normal. Okay. Um, but one thing I will say is that's, that's load weight itself, but you've also got to consider that the human has changed. Yeah. Uh, so if you go back to Herculaneum and Pompeii, there was a study by King that, that found all the bodies that were entombed in, in the ash. And they, they reckon looking at the, the size and structure of the average Roman then, they were approximately 10 or so kilograms lighter than we are now because of you know, the, the, the opportunity for food, rest, et cetera, and just mm -hmm. the nature of lifestyle. So on average, you know, we are about 10 or so kilograms heavier than they were. So when you look at relative load, uh, the relative load distribution hasn't really changed that much. It's still, still about you know, anywhere between 45 to 50% body weight often um, throughout the, the period of the conflict. We do have a lot more variation now, which we never used to, well, which the average soldier never used to have. Uh, back in antiquity, they used to have all their kit and that was it. But now you've got approach load or patrol order, then marching order, then emergency marching order. So we do have a bit of fluctuation based on the administration and logistics of what we're trying to achieve. Um, but in itself, the load weight is, is, you know, you're talking about 45 kilograms now. Uh, as an average uh, load being carried, dropping down to about 25 kilograms for uh, close quarters and uh, contacts. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, 
I was, I was surprised when I was chatting to, we had uh, on our first season, John Paul, who's at Buxton University, you know, chatting about his time within the military during the Afghan conflicts and just uh, rehabbing one of the boys who, I think he probably weighed about mid 60 kilos sort of thing, but he was carrying packs upwards of like, you know, pushing close to 70. It's like, Jesus, you know, when you're carrying even more than your own body weight and just that demand on your body. So with these yeah. like higher average loads as well, about 45, 50 kilos, what, what impact and what demand is this having on the human body of load carriage? The, the interesting thing about load is it's not just the load weight. Mm -hmm. We like to focus on load weight because it's a number. And we can say, hey, we've decreased your load weight. But the, there's other things that influence uh, the context of load carriage. So the speed of march. So how fast you're moving. So every 0.5 kilometers an hour faster you go, that's the equivalent of you know, nearly another 10 kilograms worth of load on your body metabolically. Every 1% incline, you go up. That's the equivalent of another 10%, uh, 10 kilograms of load on your body metabolically. So just because you might take off five or 10 kilograms, as soon as they start running uphill, because let's face it, you know, nine times out of 10, when you're in a contact, the enemy doesn't take the low ground, they'll take the high ground, and suddenly you're going from a patrol pace to a flat out sprint mm -hmm. up a hill. Uh, the load is the, the physiological cost of the load is exponentially higher than just the load weight itself. So it has multiple effects. Firstly, there's the physiological effect. You fatigue more quickly. It's, it's harder to move. And then it makes you slower. Your mobility goes down. And we're talking about all forms of mobility from just joint range of motion. So that's just, you know, even if you're not in contact, you're wearing this gear, you're trying to pick up something off the ground. You know, it'll changes how your body moves. So it has a huge impact on the joints in that way. Then your explosive mobility, the ability to seek cover gets slower exponentially. So there was a really nice study done uh, in 2000 that said on average, moving across 1.4 meters, uh, you know, the, the, the soldier carrying about 20 to 30 kilograms was approximately uh, 1.6 seconds slower. Now, 1.6 seconds doesn't sound like a lot unless somebody's shooting at you. Then I tell you what, an extra 1.6 seconds of exposure every bound is, is not a good place to be. And there's a great study that was brought out by uh, the Defense Science and Technology Organization down here, uh, or DST group, uh, with Dan Billing in it. And he looked at the probability of being shot, the probability of a hit based on bounding with load carriage. And again, it's, it, as soon as you put load carriage on, your risk of being hit goes up. Now, there's the converse side of that as well. Your marksmanship can go down. So if you think about the average uh, in, uh, technique used during combat, it's fire and maneuver. So firstly, your maneuver is slower, so your exposure is greater. But then those that are supposed to be providing cover fire, their marksmanship has gone down. So they're not suppressing the enemy as well as they could. So if you think about the two things that you don't want to be impacted on when you're in contact, you know, fire and maneuver, they're both impacted by load carriage. So load carriage really has a huge impact on combat capability. And then, of course, we've got things like, you know, grenade throw. The, the, the distance you can throw a grenade can actually drop to the point now where you, you're within your own blast zone of your own grenade Jeez, okay. uh, because of the weight of the equipment on your body. Um, that becomes a problem. Uh, you, then you've got things like attention to task. So your ability to pay attention and pick up visual cues goes down. And this is just as important for law enforcement officers to pick up that concealed weapon, to have a look at how somebody is moving and determine whether they're, they're a threat or not. So this has huge implications beyond just, you know, standing up there and engaging, walking out and seeing a potential divot in the road, suggesting that there might be an IED there, that the brain uh, tends to, to, to switch off. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these impacts on performance. And then, of course, you've got your risk of injury. 
Uh, and you're putting more load on your body. You're putting more load on the physical structure. And whether it be muscular stress or just pure joint compressional loading, um, eventually the body will wear out and get broken. That's it's, it's interesting to really hear all that. And I know you're saying about the marksmanship. I've, I've read a couple of papers by Mathic as well on like, you know, the impact for looking at both infantry and special forces guys and the impact of carrying that load over a set distance and how that affected marksmanship, which I found really interesting as well. Um, I know you've done, uh, you read a lot of uh, Mathic stuff as well um, with your own work as well. So um, yeah, it, it's just a really interesting standpoint on that, I'd say, Rob. Uh, indeed, and I'm, I've, been, I've been blessed. Um, Joe Knappick has, has, has been a long-term mentor of mine. As I said, I picked up his paper in 2004, and it actually helped guide me on the path. And in fact, I uh, got him to be one of my assessors for my PhD thesis. Because well, I yeah. said, you know what, if, if, if I want to make sure this is good, I want the best, you know, the person who's probably the best in the world at load courage to review it. And I've been blessed enough to actually do some research articles with him and have him over here visiting. I mean, that man has probably forgotten more about military load courage than I've ever learned. Well. Um, but when we started playing with law enforcement, we found some really interesting stuff. Soldiers use long arms. Yeah. So you've got the weapon that interdigitates with the body. So every time you're breathing heavy, it has this direct interface with the body. Pistol doesn't. So you've got the body armor, which is stabilizing the shoulders. And because you've offset, because the load is in your hands, there's no direct interdigitation between the actual weapon and the physical trunk itself yeah. and your respiration. So your shoulders and your arms can actually mitigate some of that variation in vibration. And we found that load carriage may not impact on uh, handgun marksmanship as much as it impacts on rifle marksmanship. And again, when we then teased out where it affects rifle marksmanship, it's actually along uh, the vertical axis, not necessarily the horizontal axis. Yeah. So that shows that it's more about a breathing control thing than anything, because when you're running, moving, you're breathing heavy. So we, we're starting to dive into this in a lot more detail. And it really is interesting, because if we can figure out how to mitigate the effect of load carriage, um, on marksmanship performance when it's critical, we, we could learn some fantastic lessons and actually, you know, make our personnel safer. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading that paper by uh, Joe as well, and I was quite interested with that. I was looking at it as like, you know, that impact on police marksmanship, as you've mentioned there, is it a case of just because it's a different weapon system or, you know, wearing the body armor because of the weight distribution as opposed to wearing a Bergen and stuff like that sort of thing. So that's really, really interesting. Um, well, if I can add just on that, we've just done a study as well that's found, which is really interesting, which we're really playing a lot with, is that we looked at three different police marksmanship serials, okay. and we're actually looking at fitness as it relates to marksmanship, and which are the best predictors. And you know, the, the information's all over the place. Sometimes it's a predictor, sometimes it isn't. There's no real definitive answer. So we, we decided to have a better look at it. And what we found, by pure circumstance, was that each of the different marksmanship serials are not related to each other at all. So you can have a law enforcement officer whose static shooting is fantastic, but as soon as they move, useless, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Or if you've got them doing decision-making at the same time, their marksmanship could be really, really good, uh, but they can't stand there and shoot statically. So marksmanship capability changes with scenario, okay. which is why then when we looked at fitness, different elements of fitness were related to different elements of the different marksmanship scenarios. So it depended on what shoot you were doing uh -huh. as to which element of fitness would be the most important and just because you can shoot one way does not mean you're good at shooting in another way which means the variety in training is critical they need to get exposed to as many different forms of uh, shooting as possible with coaching and mentorship 
in each of those different serials. Nice, nice. That's interesting. So what, what was your, your testing on those three modalities then, Rob? So like, you know, what fitness programs did you find matched up more static versus moving versus, you know, decision making sort of stuff? Oh, geez. Now, now you're pushing my brain. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's say grip strength was important for one, uh, lower limb power. I think the irony was lower limb strength using a leg back dynamometer from memory was more akin to the static shoot than the mobile shoot, which we never expected. Uh, grip strength, I think, was more uh, affiliated with the um, the decision making, which is contrary to some of the other studies that we found where grip strength was, you know, if you're doing a police silhouette target shooting as opposed to aiming for a center of scene mass, uh, the grip strength was actually a very, very strong predictor. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it different on, on those. But um, from memory, the, the biggest ones were lower limb uh, strength endurance and grip strength again. Uh, and there was sh the shoulder was in there somewhere, but it was, again, not where we expected it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was about it. That was like 50 papers ago. I, I would have to go back uh, and review it. <laughs> Uh, put you on the spot there, Rob. But I mean, yeah, yeah. thanks for that. <laughs> I, I mean, saying 50 papers ago, I mean, the amount of research you guys are pumping out right now is just astounding. It's just awesome to see as well. Um, to bring it back around there for a second, Rob, we've talked a little bit about like you know, performance factors of load carriage and how that's impacted. What about injury standpoints as well? You know, beating up on the body with multiple, like you know, 40, 50 kilos over a long distance, multiple times per day on deployments and stuff like that. What was the impact on the body we've seen from that, from an injury stand? Look, that, that's, really, that's really interesting because if you think about it, what you want is you want a soldier who's, or you know, law enforcement officer, even firefighter who's, who's got experience. The more experience you have, you know, the, better, the better your potential outcome is. But with experience comes exposure to the situation. But that's actually negative because if the more exposure you've got to load carriage, the greater your risk of injury. Mm -hmm. And we've just done a report uh, for the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is up on their website at the moment, looking at osteoarthritis of the lower limbs. And we're looking at, you know, how, how load on the whole body itself can lead to an increased risk of um, osteoarthritis of the lower limbs just by pure exposure to carrying load. So now not only is the load that they're wearing having a direct impact and risking injury now, but it's affecting them in 20, 30, 40 years time because of this chronic exposure. Then you've got complexities. Law enforcement officers will wear their load every day, but it's a lot lighter. Yeah. So they've got this chronicity of this light load of 10 kilograms. And you think 10 kilograms isn't heavy. Yeah, it's probably not if you're doing a squat, but if you're holding a small child in front of you all day, every day for an eight hour shift, you know, that's, that is heavy over a long period of time. Soldiers don't have that level of chronic exposure every day. They don't necessarily wear their load every day but the loads they do wear are exponentially heavier. So they've got this intermittent, very heavy load versus this lighter chronic load. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're all having different types of injuries um, and different long-term chronicity effects. And I think that's one of the big things that we're looking at now in terms of injury with load carriage. Firstly, we know that if you get injured in basic training whilst carrying load, there's you know, a one in three chance or 33 or so percent chance that you'll be re-injured within the next 12 months carrying load. If you get injured uh, during basic training, you will be injured or you've got a 50% chance of being re-injured again whilst carrying load. So that's not looking at how that injury could lead to other injuries or actually increase the risk of osteoarthritis. That's just looking at one load carriage event predicting injury on another load carriage event. So 
the, the aim here is to try and delay that initial injury for as, as long as possible um, because it has huge chronicity effects downstream on the, uh, the health and well-being of the soldier, the firefighter, or uh, the law enforcement officer. Okay, interesting. I mean, for that injury in like basic training as well, purely down to, I'm guessing, just that sudden spike in training volume from guys who probably haven't had that same, like who may be in good shape, you know, passing the entry tests, but aren't used to training multiple times per day, back-to-back days in a row yeah. sort of thing. You're 100% right. We, we've looked at, and I know Joe Knappick's also done this in the US, we looked at how much incidental load, how much distance do, do basic recruits cover? So we stuck a GPS on them and they just walked around the area and just did their normal thing, went from lesson to lesson, went to the mess, went to the queue store, et cetera. On average, this excludes any physical training or any drill, they walk about seven and a half kilometers a day. In the US, including all those other activities, they do about 11 kilometers per day. So can you imagine getting your average person today, take them into an environment, where they, there's probably going to be some food and sleep deprivation. But even if you didn't have that, giving them boots and saying, right, for the next 80 days, you're going to walk seven and a half kilometers a day. That's it. We're not even talking about drill. We're not even talking about physical training. We're not even talking about load. This is just getting the average person to walk seven and a half kilometers a day for 80 days straight. Then we add load mm-hmm. and fatigue and physical training and drill and lack of sleep because it's communal sleep and lack of nutrition because they don't have time. Yes, they might have an hour for lunch, but by the time they get there, right, and they've got to get back at least, you know, so they've got to be back five minutes early for uh, the platoon sergeant, which means they've got to be back 10 minutes early for the platoon uh, corporal, which means they've got to be back 15 minutes early for their section leader, you know? So by the time they actually look at how much food they can shove in their face, you know, we found that the average soldier in, in a one hour meal break will sit down for five to seven minutes. Wow, okay. To actually get food. So you look at all these exponential things, these, these other things, what we call PICO, Program and Use Cumulative Overload. You add all that onto the, the person who's probably just come out of high school. And remember, the last two years of high school was purely academic for them. So they've been sitting in front of a computer all day. And now you do that sort of load? The average person who is fit would break. Yeah, yeah. And that's the challenge we've got. On that then, Rob, obviously you've done a lot of research currently on load carriage. So where do you see your research going next with regards to this? Uh, Yeah, good question. (laughs) Um, Look, we're all over the shop at the moment, depending on who we're working with. So Uh we're looking at uh, body armor, for example. We're looking at mobility. So what we do know is, for example, uh, police officers have a high number of shoulder injuries. And we're looking at how the, the body armor sits on, on the upper torso and affects their ability to reach uh, and control situations and the mobility effect it has on their shoulder. So that's mm-hmm. an example of one study. Another study is looking at how body armor actually causes lower back injuries and the changes in lower back patterns of injury. Uh, so for example, when police officers used to wear accoutrements belts, when they were sitting in a police car and rotating to operate their CADs, there was this rotational aspect on their spine, which caused a lot of injuries. So now that they've got a load bearing vest on, that weight, that fixation around their hips doesn't exist but when they lean forward to do something they've got an increased flexion extension moment because of the load uh, which is above their center of gravity so we're seeing that there's a potential change from a rotational mechanism of injury for the lower back to a flexion extension mechanism so some types of injuries are going down but they're being offset somewhere else so that's the sort of stuff we're looking at with uh, body armor at the moment as well as your standard you know mobility lethality marksmanship and offloading we're doing some stuff with the Reaper system. So looking at uh, augmentation and removing load. So if they're gonna have to carry the load, can they change the mechanics of how that load is carried and assist uh, bringing that load back and closer towards the center of mass? 
So that's one system. We're actually looking at that not only in specialist uh, law enforcement, but even in uh, construction. So if they've got, you know, big, heavy jackhammers, et cetera, if you've got an uh, augmentation device to assist in bringing that center of mass closer, is there less risk of injury? Uh, we're looking at just your basic uh, impact of load carriage, starting this time at the feet. So we're working with Australian Defense Apparel, where we're looking at the boots and the impact the boots have on uh, momentum and translation forward and backwards along the AP plane and how that affects, how that has, you know, changed with load. So we know postural sway increases when you've got load. But now, how does the boots, the interface between the load and the human and the ground, how do the boots actually influence the load carriage capability? And another thing we're doing with ADA at the moment, which is really interesting, which has sort of been done by uh, militaries quite well. So we've got Digger Works in Australia, Grunt Works in the US. They're thinking of load carriage more than just the kit. They think about the soldier system. The entire soldier is a system. Uh, and that's what we're starting to do now with law enforcement as well and fire and rescue. So, I mean, the, the amount of times you see funny things. Uh, I was over uh, in the US and the law enforcement officers were doing, you know, blocking off the streets for this uh, fun run. It was about this time last year and they're all dressed as Santa. It's amazing. You know, you get, you got about 5,000 people dressed as Santa doing a fun run. It's, a, it's an annual thing. But it was freezing cold. So the law enforcement officer obviously put their jacket on. So they've now put their jacket on over their ballistic vest, which has all their equipment in it. So if they yeah. needed to actually get their equipment, they'd have to unzip their vest and try and get access to it. One of them put a high-vis vest on. So the high-vis vest now went over everything they were wearing. Um, we've seen them have pockets. So they've got great, you know, because one company will produce their shirts and they've got a beautiful pocket here. Then they put their load-bearing vest on and they've got no access to the pockets. We've actually, I remember when I was uh, in infantry in, in 2000, we had somebody come and present this new pack that was going to be revolutionary for infantry soldiers. And it was based on a hiking pack. And the scientist was presenting this new pack to us. And one of the diggers uh, just said, look, where does our H webbing, you know, the old webbing, uh, where do we put the webbing on? Because that, that new strap that you've got coming across the hips, you know, would get in the way. And I kid you not, the scientist actually said, so you actually wear your pack and your webbing at the same time. <laughs> and that was just like, oh, right, okay. Um, so again, it's, it's quite often they don't think of how one bit of equipment actually interdigitates with another. And often you've got multiple providers. So you might have one company providing the shirts, a different company providing the pants, a different company providing the boots or the socks, and then one providing the vest and then one providing you know, uh, all the attachments on the vest. And there is no cohesion. And that is where I see us moving into the future, getting better at this cohesion, thinking of uh, the, the soldier, thinking of the law enforcement officer, the firefighter as a system. Yeah. So that's the one thing that I see. The other thing I see is load going up okay. again. The complexity of the battlefield is getting worse, is, is getting harder. Until we even solve a simple problem like power. I mean, how many different battery types did you used to have to carry going out field? Because, well, this one will take double A's and that one will take an, you know, the old square nine volt battery, but this one will take triple A's. Uh, this one needs a totally different lithium battery to, to operate the radio. So th you're carrying now seven or eight different types of batteries just to provide power to all the equipment you've now got. And we're providing more and more digitized equipment, which means we need more and more power, Yeah. which means more and more load. Jeez. I was going to ask you there, you're saying about some of the stuff around body armor and that as well, Rob. Um, how much of an impact then is like, you know, your anthropometry and your body composition going to have on that impact of like, say your, your vests of system for the police guys or even from the military, you know, how that sits on you as well, or can, 
you know, yeah. you have a bit more variation within design, like for those vests to fit different anthropometry types or? Yeah, you're spot on. Um, so traditionally you had like one, one size fits no one. And they said, yeah. well, this doesn't work. So we'll now, you know, <laughs> make small, medium and large. Yeah. And we'll try, you know, dichotomize you into small, medium and large. And oh, what, you're female. So that means you're extra small. So, you know, we use the anthropometrics of, of a bunch of guys. And now, well, you're female, so you're just a smaller guy. Um, a really interesting conversion I heard of that is where a law enforcement officer was told, oh, look, for all these, uh, your new female officers. So rather than, um, you know, buy shorts specific for them, we'll just buy smaller shorts. And the, the, the officer actually turned around, very, very astute man, and turned around and said, so what I'll do is I'll just buy a whole bunch of uh, female cut shorts and just make them larger for males. Oh, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But they're quite happy to do the reverse. Yeah. Um, and what we're starting to realize is that, well, not only are men and women different, you know, no rocket surgery there, but every human is different. And that's now where we're starting to go with this soldier as a system. We're starting to look at the anthropometrics and not just trying to hit that 95%. Hopefully it'll fit everybody. We're, we're trying to say, well, this is what your system needs. This is what your system needs. Now that becomes complex, particularly for logistics. And administration. How, how do Q stores actually have, they can't have one load bearing vest for everybody. Yeah. So you're starting to get packs that you can adjust the frames more and more and more. Um, but so you'll see a pack that you've got 20 different variations uh, in the settings, but the, the shoulder strap width is the exact same. And yet the acromial breadth in males and females is, you know, on average is very different. So mm -hmm. you've got this compression effect now, which increases your risk of brachial plexus palsy, which is another low carriage orientated injury. So it is an incredibly complex thing to fix, but at least we're starting to pay attention to it now. We're, we're trying to get uh, not only just general load carriage, but body armor that is suitable for the individual. Um, it's a complex thing. And until we move to things like scale, dragon armor, uh, you know, uh, maybe this is going to be a huge challenge. Even if you start to change the molding, does it change the ballistic protection of the vest that you're wearing. So if you add a princess cut and you've got a molded shape, what happens if the round hits on, you know, on a curvature? Yeah. Does, it, does it maintain its ballistic integrity or not? Uh, one of the, the ladies that I work with who, who's worked with uh, several military um, organizations on, on, and law enforcement organizations, we had this great chat one evening and she was going, so what about Space Force? You know, so how yeah. are you gonna be wearing body armor in zero gravity? with Space Force. And if we're moving away from high yield ballistic equipment now into things like high energy laser pulses, how's that gonna change body armor? So looking 20, 30, 50 years into the future, yeah. how are we gonna be protecting you know, personnel that are fighting in Space Force, uh, for example? But yeah, so that's, there's, there's a lot of interesting complex things, but one of the things I will say is you're 100% right. We're starting to focus more now on that individual okay. for, the, for the equipment fit. Excellent. I mean, sounds awesome. It sounds like there's a lot of great research going on there, mate, and interested to see how that progresses with all of it. Um, just to pull the background to the load carriage uh, stuff, Rob, then, how can guys, you know, go about, you know, appropriately training, you know, to improve their load carriage performance? And second to that, what do you see are the typical errors most people do when trying to improve load carriage performance? Yeah, look, great question. Because one thing about load carriage conditioning that is within our locus of control. Mm -hmm. We can't control how many stores we have to carry. We can't control the areas we have to fight. What we can control is how physically capable we are to carry load. Now, there's a couple of caveats. Firstly, you cannot make a human so strong that eventually load won't break them. 
Yeah. So load carriage conditioning shouldn't just be seen that fact, you know what, we can make you fit and then we can add whatever the hell we want onto you. It's not going to work. But what we do need to do is make them as physically robust as possible to withstand the rigors of load carriage. Now, considering that, one of the biggest mistakes I see is this old functional training. You know, functional training. So, oh, you're required to do this task. Right. So let's do this task, but put all your kit on you. Yeah. Well, why? You know, what are you actually trying to achieve here? Um, let's look at a law enforcement officer. They're carrying and wearing their load every single day. Do you really need to do more work with a loaded vest on? Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. actually going to improve their load carriage performance? Do we need to look at actually at counter-functional training to deload them because they're wearing that load every day? And it, it's the old adage of do more. Well, if we do a little bit, we do more, we'll get better. Well, no, actually, sometimes if you do less, the body can recover and your performance will go up. So I see that as one of, one of, one of the biggest problems. Everybody just wants to throw a pack on or throw you know, a weighted vest on and I'm doing load carriage training. It still also needs to be considered as part of a holistic approach. It is not a one tool fix. You need strength. The body needs to be physically strong. You need aerobic capacity. You need a big engine. You need both. If you only have one, you will have a weakness that'll uh, become exploited by load. So if you've got a great engine, if you can run out of sight you know, in, in 10 seconds flat, nobody can catch you and you're a rabbit, fantastic. As soon as I put a heavy weight on you, your joints, your skeletal system will fatigue and will break. If you're as strong as an ox, but you can't run out of sight on a dark night, you know, once you start to carry this load, you're going to fatigue. And as soon as you fatigue, you burn through more energy and your risk of injury goes up. You need both. So you need strength work. You need metabolic work. And then you need to actually carry the load. And you need to do the load carriage at least once every seven to 14 days. And it doesn't always have to be the heaviest load possible. Just put load on. And it could be the simple thing in a, in a military unit, you know, once a week, once a fortnight. And we used to do this in, in the, the battalion. I don't even know if we used to do it because of this reason, but we did used to do it where uh, every Friday, it used to be pay Thursday in those days, every pay Thursday, for example, uh, you're in patrol order. That's it. No matter what you're doing around the, the unit, whether you're the duty driver, whether you're the duty runner, uh, whether you're just doing basic platoon training, you're doing admin, you're in patrol order for the day. That's it. And there's that chronic loading experience without having to do physical training, but you can actually get that incidental load. Um, but you need to load them up and it needs to be progressive. But then once you've got this load on, you need to vary how you condition them. So it's, as I said, it's not just load weight. So you need to make them run and move fast and slow. You mm-hmm. need to make them go uphill and downhill. So quite often load carriage training is on a bitumen path. It's walk along a track. There is no challenge to the stabilization system of the body. So you need to change the speed of march, the nature of the terrain, the incline of the terrain, the duration. You know, quite often you'll look at the, the loads and, oh, we've got one hour of physical training. Great, we'll carry load for one hour. On operations, you don't carry load for one hour. You know, you can carry load for 16 hours. You can do a 15K infill, spend two or three hours on station, and then you've got a 15K exfill because the choppers don't want to come and get you. That is not one hour of physical training. So you need to slowly progress it to meet the context. Um, So I think those are the biggest mistakes. Pigeonholing it into a one-hour session, thinking that a load carriage session alone is enough for load carriage conditioning, and excessively just throwing load on for the sake of throwing load on. It needs to be part of a structured, periodized program that isn't just built within the PT realms, but takes into consideration what else the soldier is doing during that day. So for example, if they're gonna be doing a nav exercise as part of platoon training, 
Well, you don't want them to go to the gym and the, the physical training instructor goes, okay, we're going to do a load carriage session today. Takes them out there, beasts them for an hour. You know, they're coughing up their lungs, their nose is bleeding. And then they say, right, they go to the platoon and the platoon says, right, we're doing a 12 hour Navex. Gear on, let's go out and do a Navex. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. Or they've done two hours on the parade ground in the heat. Then you say, right, PT, we're doing a load carriage session and they go down with dehydration. <laughs> of course, everybody then blames the load carriage saying, oh, load carriage is dangerous. You know, it caused dehydration. Well, what about the two hours on the parade ground on the bitumen on the blacktop in the middle of the day? So we need to think about the complexities of this PT program within the greater complexity of the training or what else personnel are doing. So it's, it's not an easy fix. It's a big challenge. And then, of course, you've got, you've got some guy who weighs 50 kilograms. And you've got one guy who weighs 100 kilograms. And if you give them both 50 kilograms, one's working 100% body weight, one's working 50% body weight. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> it's complex. So how, in that context then, uh, Rob, how would you break that down from your background? Would you say it's better to go starting off with maybe a percentage of body weight and then build up to the operational workload you want to be? Or would you go for more of a static load on that? Look, yeah, that's, that's really a good question. Um, I like to use percentage of body weight as a, as a general starting guide. And then you start to add in other factors. Um, fitness is one big one. So how well they went in their 2.4K run, because that's their metabolic engine. Yeah. Uh, whether they or not they've had a previous injury. So previous injury. So you could have somebody who's metabolically fit, who's only carrying a third of their body weight. They've had a knee injury. Their risk of breaking is a lot higher or back injury. So the knees and backs in particular, they are the biggest negative impacts on low carriage ankles. You can get away with a little bit, um, but you know, shoulder injuries you can get away with a little bit. They still have an impact, but knees and backs are devastating to low carriage. So those are the things you need to think about. And this is sort of drawing on what you're talking about before, where we start to individualize, not yeah. only the equipment now, the soldier system, the individual that are training, you start to look at their sleep. Did they have a good sleep last night? Because you can have the strongest, fittest person that had a really bad sleep. They haven't eaten well, right? Because it was a pay Thursday and they went out and indulged a little bit too much. And, you know, they had Kentucky duck for, for dinner uh, and then for breakfast the next morning. Uh-huh. And then suddenly expect them to perform well. So there's all these other factors, but I would start off basically progressing as a lighter percentage body weight. Um, then once I get up to the average patrol load, then I'd start manipulating other variables like speed, like terrain. Uh, and then based on the individual and their requirements within their section, I'll start to add other loads. Are they the gunner? Uh, are they the number one rifleman? Are they the SIG? Then you start to progress and add those other complexities in their load carriage. Cool. That's great. Thank you very much, Rob. I think that's really insightful for a lot of the guys listening in there as well. Um, obviously, I said at the start, you're at Bond uh, University right now, heading up the tactical research unit. Before that, were you, uh, you know, with uh, Rod, uh, Dr. Rod Pope, were you headhunted by him directly into that position or did you know Rod prior to that? Or yeah, So that's a great question. Dr. Rod Pope, uh, he was, as, us, um, as we had a, a that quick discussion earlier, he actually headed up the defense injury prevention program. So he was actually helping to control injuries within defense and incredibly effective outcomes. You look at some of his work. I mean, uh, the ACL uh, ACL injuries from landing after a pit jump, um, they changed the landing pit. And because of his processes that he had in place, they were able to identify that immediately and change the landing area. And literally, they went from several ACL ruptures in a month to zero. Um, so he had this great injury prevention program going and I was a physical training instructor getting into this injury prevention space. And, and when I was acting 
um, Warrant Officer of the Royal Military College. Obviously, we were involved in this Defence Injury Prevention Program to help mitigate injuries in our trainees, and that's where I got to meet him. Uh, so we got to, you know, share information. This man, again, he's just like Joe Knappick. The knowledge in his head uh, is, is unbelievable. Uh, he was also the one that came up the the levels of fitness based uh, and based on percentage of risk for passing uh, basic training, which is how the Army and the Navy and Air Force came up with the, the entry level of aerobic fitness based purely on science. Um, so we started doing a lot of work together. And then I asked him to you know, be my mentor when I did uh, my PhD and to come on as a supervisor. And uh, so we brought on a, a mentorship team. And I was actually sitting in Paris, believe it or not, uh, at the Australian Embassy in Paris. And there was a conference that was being held. And one of my supervisors, who was uh, Dr. Venerina Johnson from the University of Queensland, came over to co-present at a, a conference in Paris. And we were sitting down having cheese and wine, as you do. And she said, look, have you ever thought about life outside of the military? And of course, I joined when I was 17, and the military was everything I knew, but I was getting pretty sick and tired of moving a lot. And I said, well, not really. Um, she said, well, one day think about becoming an academic. And lo and behold, I got back to Australia, and I was working at Special Operations Command. And about two months after I got back to Australia, there was an ad, you know, physiotherapist wanted with a PhD working at Bond University. So I thought I'd give it a crack, and I was lucky enough to get the job. So I started working here, and then lo and behold, uh, I caught up with my, my longtime mentor, Dr. Rod Pope, and he was looking for a bit of a sea change, and we had a position open here at the time. So I actually snaffled him and got him to come join me here at Bond University. Nice. Um, so he came over to Bond University, and that's, that's where that, that relationship started, and it's been an amazing, enduring one. Um, we actually have a saying here at our unit, because Rod now works for Charles Sturt University, so he's a professor over there. When we send information out and he sends it back, we say, you've either been rotted or you've been joed. That means Rod Pope or Joe Napick has looked at your work and just shredded it in comments and red, red ink, saying, nice first draft. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he, he is still one of our, um, our major mentors. Uh, both Rod and uh, Joe have, have that, I think that's one thing, if you're ever starting a research unit, and I think everybody should have one, you mm -hmm. need a good mentor. And we're, we're blessed that we have two. Well, that is awesome. That is awesome, dude. And I mean, it, it shows from the, the quality of the work you guys are putting out right now across so many different um, avenues as well, not just the load carriage stuff as well, but I've seen you putting out stuff on like the use of, is it virtual reality as well on, um, you know, marksmanship yeah. and stress response and stuff. And it's, it's, it's just incredible. It's, it's great. But again, we're lucky as well. We've got some great collaborators. And that's yeah. the next thing, you know, you build your network. We've got Dr. Jay Dawes. We've got Dr. Robert Lockie. We've got, uh, you know, serving personnel like Joe Dula. Uh, they, they just augmented fill up. In, over in Abu Dhabi, we've got um, Philip Cusick. You know, so we've got building teams everywhere that, that we go. Uh, Dr. Eduardo uh, Marins over in uh, uh, Brazil. So we, we're building up these fantastic networks. And if you've got a good team and they work horses and they believe in what they're doing, uh, yeah, your productivity goes through the roof. It's, it's mm -hmm. literally, it's like just trying to hang on, you know, this is great. It's, you know, it's one of those exciting rides where you're just hanging on with a big grin on your face going, oh, shit, I hope I don't let go. And you've just got this big cheesy grin on your face and knowledge is coming in and you're working with a great bunch of people. It's, uh, I'm very blessed. That's cool, mate. That is cool. Now, uh, Rob, every guest I have on, I'm always keen to know what, you know, they're involved in for their own CPD and stuff like that. So just on that, mm -hmm. could you give us a book, an app or a website recommendation that you found useful in your own education or your own development? Ooh, um, for me, it's everything. Uh, I like the, the TSAC report from the NSEA. 
it's pragmatic. It's often written by practitioners who are doing it in the field, but have a bit of that, that science background. So it's that nice translation from research to practice. It's yeah. a nice, easy read as well. So when you've got a short amount of time, quick, easy read. Uh, but journal, journal articles. You know, use Google Scholar if you, if you don't have a, you know, another search engine like we have at the universities. But um, you know, read journal articles. Read what's being published. Read everything and anything. Read real-life books. So that's the one I've got at the moment. That's my next one on my Christmas list. Uh, so oh, this yeah. is uh, about Cameron Baird, who was a VC winner. Um, so that's, you know, we know what the VC is, but for like those in the, the US, that's like a Congressional Medal of Honor. So I want to read his life story. You know, um, there's, there's, there's so much. I think as long as you're reading anything, find something and read it, um, apart from comic books, et cetera. Although some of those comic books aren't too bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just as long as you're reading anything to do with the field, um, it's, you know, even magazines, contact magazine. Always stay in touch with what's happening in your field. And I think um, as long as you keep your brain engaged, you will learn something. Learn from people. Have good mentors. Sit down and just have a phil philosophical discussion. And who knows, you'll be talking about body armor and space force. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's strange things that, that, that come up. And I think that as long as your brain is always working forward. Um, and you know the classic saying, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. Always challenge yourself, um, which is how you get rotted or napped uh, or jowed. So anyway. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, uh, Rob, you know, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long, long time, and I'm really glad to get to sit down and chat for you. And I think anyone listening to this episode is going to learn an awful lot from it as well. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with you or find out a bit more about you or the work you're doing over at uh, Bond, how can they do that? Um, so we're finally getting our website up and running. Um, the problem with us is that we're too busy actually doing all the research to worry about the logistics stuff, but we've got somebody actually doing that now. And so our website is uh, www.tiu, for Tactical Research Unit, uh, .bond, as in Bond University, .edu, .au. Um, and uh, so we'll be starting to, to, to put that out more. There's obviously the Tactical Research Unit uh, website on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I guess, look, if, if, you, if you've got questions, et cetera, just contact us. Uh, contact me at ro at bond.edu.au. We're, we're always more than happy to share information, share knowledge and learn things. Um, we, we find that obviously by helping other people out, we get to see things and look at things in a different light. Um, who'd ever thought about, you know, have you ever thought about looking at your nutritional intake, but how would that affect uh, law enforcement officers in Abu Dhabi during Ramadan? Well, yeah. You know, so they don't eat during the day. Um, wow. Okay. So how's that going to change your nutritional planning for a law enforcement officer? There's, there's so many wonderful things. Let's, let's go to Singapore where, you know, you still have conscription. So you can have a physical training instructor with, you know, having to train, 200 people and somebody's got a BMI of 37. You have no choice. They didn't get in there because they wanted to be there and they fit. And there was a fitness test beforehand. You've got to motivate everybody. You know, all these, so working with all these different populations is, is and, and getting questions from different populations helps us grow as well. So I really encourage people that if they've got questions or whatever, you know, we'd, we'd love to help out. That's cool. That is awesome. Thank you very much, Rob. I'll make sure I pop those links you said there, as well as your book recommendations and your journal recommendations in our show notes as well. Uh, once again, Rob, thank you very much. I know you're a busy guy. You've got a lot going on over there, but thank you very much for taking time out of your day to sit down and chat with me. Mate, thank you very much for having me. I love your work. Uh, and I love listening to your, your the podcast when I drive to and from work. 
no, no, so, no, no. thank so you thank very much, you. Bud. All right. Thanks, mate. Take care. Take care, bud. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarchy and Performance podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support in us can ask you to do me a simple favor. To share the show, please take a screenshot of whatever episode you're listening to and put it in your stories on Instagram and make sure you tag me in it. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. Either tag me at Coach John P or at Monarchium Performance and I will reshare it. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.